Hey everyone, welcome to the Pathway Church Podcast. We're a Bible-based church located in Peterborough, Ontario, and we're on a mission to reach people far from God and see them become devoted followers of Jesus. Hey, I'm glad you're here with us this week. We're kicking off a brand new four-week series with Pastor Mark Clark from Village Church called The Problem of Jesus. It's based on his most recent book, and I know it's going to be helpful as we think about the person and work of Jesus and its significance in our lives. You picked a great time to join us. I hope this message is helpful, and uh, we will be uh, touching base. At the end of this message, you're going to hear a conversation from myself and our board members and one of our elders uh, talking about a sabbatical that is coming up for me as the lead pastor. And so if you're interested in that and you're part of our church, stick around at the end to hear more about that. And now, Mark Clark, The Problem of Jesus Hey everybody, Pastor Mark Clark here. Really good to have you part of this series, The Problem of Jesus. We're going to jump into this. The first message in this series is the problem of the Gospels, the books that present Jesus. Can we trust them? How do they even work? What are they all about? That's what this sermon is all about. So glad that you're with us today. Hopefully you got a Bible. If you do, John chapter 5 is where we're going to uh, launch out of for this message. Okay, so here's how we're going to start this. Don't freak out, okay? Uh, But you know the end of the Lord's Prayer? Like, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, amen, Matthew chapter 6. Jesus probably never said that. Yeah, someone made that up and put it in later, and and every scholar kind of knows that. And, And while we're at it, not to ruin all the signs that people hold up at football games, but Jesus probably never actually said the words that are ascribed to him, probably the most famous, uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, you know, John 3, 16. Now, wait a minute, aren't those claims unchristian? Don't they mean that the gospels can't be trusted? No. What we're going to find out is they mean that we need to read the Gospels more closely and more according to what they claim to be versus what we as modern audiences try to make them. We haven't been reading them right. Now, what do I mean? That's what today is all about. we got to explore, can we trust the Gospels, the biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or are they, like skeptics say, just made-up fairy tales about Jesus? See, This is what skeptics claim, that the early church made up Christianity. They made up the healings. They made up doing miracles. They made up these stories. And they just said, let's write them down in books and pass them around. But none of this stuff actually happened. And so we got to deal with that question. And then we got to go, how do we properly understand them for our lives? Because sometimes people who are closest to the Bible, and I don't know if you found this, they tend to get Jesus wrong. How is that possible? We see this early in Jesus' ministry. He comes face to face with a group of mature Bible scholars, the guys who went to church all the time, and he tells them this is exactly what they were doing. So John chapter 5, listen to what he says. You search the scriptures, verse 39, and you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And later down he says, if you believe Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Years ago, when we were pregnant with our first kid, um, we wanted to figure out what gender it was. Are we having a boy? Are we having a girl? What are we going to do? And so uh, the, the hospital wouldn't tell us. So we had to take, uh, we had to go to this place called UC Baby, where they would do this kind of, uh, you know, they would look into the belly and, and they put on Mozart music and then they'd give you a DVD to take home and you'd be able to see this kind of 3D picture of your child dancing around. And that's, we would love that. We watched that every week until that baby was born and we'd bring friends over and you kind of look at it. But once our first child was born, 
wouldn't it be weird if I just kept going and watching that DVD over and over again? Like the real kids like, hey, dad, want to have dinner? I'm like, I'm watching the DVD of you in utero. It'd be, be kind of odd for odd thing to do because the real thing has arrived. This is the challenge Jesus is giving these guys. You focus on the Bible and then everything the Bible was telling you about me has arrived and you just keep focusing on it because you're focusing on the word, but you're missing the word behind the word. You're missing the one that the word was pointing to. It would be silly, but it would also be super destructive. And this is what we have to be careful of. He's saying, if you don't believe in me, you completely misunderstand the entire Bible. And this is the problem. You keep going back to the DVD, even though I'm standing here right in the flesh. Jesus is telling them that they don't understand, despite having spent a lifetime studying the Bible. So let's make sure we don't make the same mistake. So let's let's understand what the Gospels actually are. How do they work? Can we trust them? What's left for us when we look at the New Testament is four biographies of Jesus. Life-giving books crafted by skilled authors about the most important subject ever written. These are not cold prose or boring historical biographical summaries. They're thoughtful, colorful, emotional portraits. Okay, so that's what we got to stand when we're reading the Gospels. It's truth, but it's truth on fire. It's truth with a purpose. So what is a Gospel? The Gospels are the four books that, of course, present the life of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, my dad was an ardent atheist, and he was against any church, any Bible, any prayer, any anything. And my mom said, I want to name uh, my first child Matthew. So my older brother's name is Matthew. But my dad was like, well, I don't want it to be biblical. I don't want it to be spelt like the Gospel of Matthew. So we're going to spell it with one T. So my Bible, my, my brother's name is actually spelt Matthew with one T. Four years later, they had me and named me Mark. So clearly this guy had never picked up a Bible before because literally this is the list. Matthew, Mark. If I had another brother, he'd call him, probably call him Luke because he doesn't have a clue what's going on. So this is what we got to understand. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are recognized as the authoritative biographies of Jesus and they have been for the last 2,000 years. So the first thing we need to confront is a couple of questions. What are the Gospels themselves? The best way to understand the writings called Gospels, literally good news, is theological history. They're at one level, they're like Greek-style biography, like a fact-based story, but on another level, they actually fit the genre of Jewish storytelling, presenting a prophet or teacher in light of the anointing by God and the resulting message for the world. Both of these kind of genres prioritize accurate retellings of facts through engaging storytelling. And that's where we have to come at this, even as skeptics. It's a creative blend of history and theology, and it's hard for us, if we're bad readers of story, to actually miss the art of it. See, in that sense, the Gospels are not biographies in the way that we use the term today. The writers did not feel compelled to include every detail of Jesus' life, especially if it didn't serve their authorial intentions. They didn't feel constrained to like write from detached viewpoints. They didn't give equal treatment to all the periods of an individual's life. They felt free to write in topical as well as chronological sequence. They were highly selective in the material they included. The words, they could abbreviate them. They would explain them. They would paraphrase them. They would contemporize in whatever way the individual author, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, saw as beneficial for the audience that they were actually writing to. And they were allowed to do this stuff. Let me give you an example. So Matthew's use of the phrase kingdom of heaven. He says it probably like 50 times in his gospel. But then you read Luke and Mark and they constantly say kingdom of God. 
And so which is it? Is it the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God? This is an example of a difference in how the authors want to report the story. So which one did Jesus actually say? Well, he said both. See, scholars point out that Matthew's account may have changed the word God for heaven because he had a very Jewish audience. And they had great reverence for the word God in written form. And so every time they read it, they would have to go wash and take a break. So in some cases, he would just, each of the readings that name, they might actually require performing a routine of all these things. So he goes, hey, let let me change that to adapt to my audience. Let me change it to heaven. Now that's one angle on it. But another angle on it is Jesus said both in his ministry interchangeably. And Matthew used the, the times when he said heaven for all the above reasons. So here's another example. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. As I talked about in the intro, in many modern Bibles, those words are recorded in red, like an indication that Jesus said them. Now, this doesn't change anything, but most scholars recognize that, you know, in the Greek, in the original telling, they didn't have, you know, red letters versus, they didn't even have quotations or paragraphs or sentence structure. And most scholars recognize that that verse isn't actually John, it's, or Jesus, it's actually John commenting on what Jesus has said. Now, does that mean you walk away from your Bible? No, it just means we've been reading those things and pouring our modern understanding of readings into them. See, writers had the freedom to even move stories around in support of their theological goal. They didn't always have to maintain chronology. So Mark, for instance, clusters together the miracles in chapter one. And the parables in chapter four, is this allowed? In modern biographies, we would say no. We have to record it exactly as he said it. But in ancient biography, this was the commonly accepted way. There was no other known way of actually doing it. In fact, understanding the flexibility available to the gospel writers and the intentional way with which they ordered the events and stories opens the Bibles up to us in a a most amazing way. Because I remember a time in college where I recognized this. There was a story in Mark chapter eight where Jesus heals a blind man, but he only half heals him. And and the guy says, he touches him once and he's like, well, how do you, you know, are you healed? And he's like, well, I see people walking around like trees. And then he touches him a second time and he's healed. And I was like, I don't really understand what's going on there. Does Jesus lack power? What's going on? And then in the midst of that story, there was a story about the disciples. And Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And they said, well, you're the Messiah. And then he said, well, that means I'm going to suffer. And they said, no, that you're not going to suffer. We reject that version of Messiahship. And for the first time, I realized that Mark was putting these two stories together on purpose. He was trying to say the disciples, like that blind man, only half see. They see Jesus like like men walking around like trees. They only half get it. Because when they define, here, you're the Messiah, and he says that means I'm going to suffer, and they reject it, they need a second touch too. They need a second touch to understand the true identity of Jesus, which is the second half of Mark's gospel. See, so here's the thing. Skeptics may be uncomfortable with this concept, right? Preferring that the writers just do everything at face value in chronological order, focusing on... But here's what we all have to understand. It's naive and anachronistic of us to look back and judge the methods used by writers of a different era. It's like saying that the newer and better ways of doing things invalidate the approaches of the past, but they don't. They simply make them a product of their time. 
That's what the Gospels are. And oftentimes when we approach them and we have a struggle with them, it's because we're coming at them as modern thinkers. So let's talk about the Gospels themselves. I'm going to use a couple of examples for you just to kind of frame how they work and what they're about. N.T. Wright, who's this New Testament scholar, says that each Gospel in its own unique way is depicting the life of Jesus as the climax to Israel's history, specifically that Old Testament story giving birth to this final and climactic moment. Matthew, for instance, likely the second of the Gospels written, presents Jesus as the fulfillment of that earlier story. It actually begins with that genealogy, right? Which positions it as a reshaping of Genesis almost. Literally, Matthew's opening words are Biblos Genesos. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, literally translated as the book of Genesis. So, so this time, however, Matthew's not giving us the creation story. He's giving us the new creation story. And Matthew connects Jesus to the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, casts him as the new and better Moses, right? It's the story of Israel and exile and slavery overseen by a foreign pagan power, now Rome instead of Egypt awaiting a savior to come and free them and take them to the promised land again, right? So Jesus goes up to a mountain, departs from his people, leaving them with a commission to go in and possess the new promised land that is the entire world. That's what the great commission is at the end of uh, Matthew's gospel. Um, Luke. Luke is likely the third gospel written. It structures itself around the creation of Israel's kingship, right? Jesus is the new David, according to Luke. David's story progresses through his life He's an outcast, right? He, he, go read 1st, 2nd Samuel. He's leading a motley crew of followers through the Judean wilderness and reaches his climax when he's anointed king over Israel and one of his first acts is to, to do what? Go take Jerusalem, take the city as his capital. David's anointing is then followed by his taking on of Goliath single-handedly as the representative of Israel. And what happens with Jesus? His anointing in his baptism is followed by his battle with Satan in the wilderness. See, they're casting Jesus as the fulfillment of this story. And Mark and John do the same thing. They have this beautiful theological intent behind them, not just a historical one. Now, here's a question that skeptics often ask, and even as Christians we do. Can we trust the Gospels? As we consider the legitimacy of biblical texts and the question of what material in the Gospels actually comes from the historical Jesus, it's helpful to actually frame it around a few criteria, okay? So whether we can trust these things. The first one, here's why scholars left and right actually trust the Gospels. The first one is what they call a criterion of embarrassment, meaning the inclusion of stuff in the Gospels that that would have created difficulty for the early church. So if the early church was writing a mythology of Jesus, right? We want to make Jesus look like this great hero. We want to make him look this way. Then it wouldn't make sense for them to include material that would weaken its position or embarrass them. So, so let me give you an example of this embarrassing stuff. Jesus, not knowing the exact day or hour of the end of all things, despite claiming to know everything. Go read Mark 13. He's basically saying, I know everything, I know everything. And then they go, okay, when are you coming back? And he's like, I don't have any clue. And it's like, take that part out. Don't put that part in there. Uh, Jesus attempts to pass off his job of saving the world at the last minute. Go read Matthew chapter 26. 
He's in the garden. His job is to save everybody and suffer. And he's he's sweating in the garden. And he's saying, can you take this cup from me? I don't even want to do this anymore. And then, of course, he follows it and says, not my will, but your will. But the point is, don't include that stuff. Just have him be the hero. Have him in Braveheart, you know, riding his big pony in, ready to slay everybody. It's the criterion of embarrassment that scholars talk about. Okay, secondly, we've got to understand the, the criterion of the actual authors themselves. History scholars have pointed out that if you're creating a religion, uh, these guys might be the worst guys to ascribe authorship of these gospels to. Like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's no need to actually give these guys authorship. So one writer has said this. Why would Christians as early as the second century ascribe these otherwise anonymous gospels to three such unlikely candidates if they didn't in fact write them? Mark and Luke, after all, were not among Jesus' 12 apostles. Luke is particularly obscure, being mentioned by name only once in the New Testament. And Mark is best known for his abandoning of Paul. And probably Jesus, if you read Mark chapter 14. So here's the thing. Matthew was a tax collector. He was one of the most hated, despised, untrustworthy types of people in first century Israel. Mark and Luke weren't even disciples of Jesus. And John, John was a disciple who wrote a book so unlike the other three that it historically gets challenged seemingly every generation. So, So technically the early church had the freedom to ascribe authorship of the gospels to anyone they wanted. So if they did, in fact, falsely attribute them, they couldn't have chosen a less compelling group. Nevertheless, all of the early writers in the first century and the first the century after that, for basically you know, 300 years after the original disciples, all agree. And there are no competing traditions. The early writers on Christianity don't suggest any other authors for these books. So perhaps the strongest argument against the idea that Christianity felt free to just make up teachings and actions of Jesus comes ironically from what we never find in the Gospels themselves. So here's the thing we got to understand. Numerous Christian controversies surfaced and threatened to tear the early church apart in the early years. Questions regarding whether or not believers need to be baptized, need to be circumcised, the place of food laws, modes of baptism, speaking in tongues, spiritual gifts, the role of women in ministry. All these were controversies that could have been avoided if the first Christians had just retroactively clarified these points and written them back into the Gospels, right? Just have Jesus say, here's my position on tongues, and then everything's settled. Here's my position on Gentiles being circumcised. But there's nothing. We can't overstate the temptation present for the early church to have fabricated events, stories, and teachings and authoritatively placed them back into the mouth in the life of Jesus because it would have just clarified everything, but they didn't. And so scholars look and they go, man, this is actually brings a ton of credibility. Now, here's, here's, a, here's another uh, criterion it, it, that scholars look at. It's that of the differences in the Gospels. So, you, you notice when you're reading the Gospels, there's all kinds of different... Like, I remember uh, years ago, I read a parable in Luke's Gospel, and Jesus was talking about something, and then a parable in Matthew's Gospel, and they were like the same parable, but all the de- some of the details were different. Like, there was two birds, and this one, and one bird, and that one. There was two masters, and that one. There was three, and that one. I was like, oh my goodness, these guys made these up. And then I began to understand when I started actually researching history, something very important that we got to understand when we find like a discrepancy in the Gospels. 
It's that Jesus was constantly moving around from one place to another. And he, as teachers of the time did, told the same stories many times over. And they came up with slightly different variations on those same ideas and stories in those different contexts. So one uh, author says this, the overwhelming probability is that most of what Jesus said, he said not twice, but 200 times. And with, of course, a myriad of local variations. So here's what's striking, is, is the fact that what was evidently seen as the core of the story, uh, if you go read um, the conversion story of Saul, for instance, in the book of Acts, three times in the book of Acts, that same story is told, but there's like different nuances in all of them, but the core is the same. And the core teaching is word for word the same in each account after which each of the telling of the story goes its own distinct way. And that's kind of tends to be what happens. The same could be said about a number of gospel stories. When you read the, the stilling of the storm, when you read the healing of the possessed boy, when you're going through the gospels, the widow's pence, you know, when she brings her money, the Lord's prayer, the last supper, all of these have these different nuances. It's not because they didn't happen. It's because these guys are telling it from their version. Some of these parables he would have told 200 times. And Luke's telling the one he told in Mark, and Matthew's telling the one he told in December, and that's okay. See, if they were making the stories up, they would literally have wanted to show agreement and would have been careful to get everything in sync with one another. But that doesn't happen. There's all these discrepancies. The same is true about the difference between the details of Easter morning. You would think that Easter morning, all of Christianity rises and falls on Easter. Let's make sure all the details are exactly the same. But when you read John's gospel, there were two angels at the tomb. But when you read Matthew's gospel, there was one angel at the tomb. So, or, or even how many women were there? And what was the precise location of the appearance of Jesus to his disciples? All of these have bits of discrepancies. But for the historian, here's what the historian says. One, one scholar says this, if the gospels were made up, if they were the fabrication of a group of people, then they would be completely free of discrepancies. The fact that they cannot agree over how many women or how many angels were at the tomb or even on the location of the appearances of Jesus does not mean that nothing happened, but that the opposite is the case, namely that something likely did happen. The stories exhibit exactly the surface tension, which we associate not with tales artfully told by people eager to sustain a fiction and therefore anxious to make everything look right, but with humbled, puzzled accounts of those who have seen with their own eyes something which took them horribly by surprise. That's the tension we get. And it actually, from a scholarly academic standpoint, brings legitimacy to the Gospels. And then, of course, there's the, the external evidence. Rather than spinning legends, as skeptics claim, the gospel writers go out of their way to root themselves in external history, as if anticipating the skeptical challenges that lie ahead. So if you read the beginning of Luke's gospel, for instance, I mean, listen to it. Uh, Luke chapter 3 starts in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. When Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetriarch of Galilee, like, are you sleeping yet? Luke cites, in his, he's trying to root his whole story in a historical moment with leaders, and he's naming them, all of which archaeology has vindicated. Through his book, 
Luke cites seven rulers working from the greatest rulers down in order to root his story in the history that surrounds Jesus. And all of that data, Luke lays out confirming by secular sources over and over again, if you go read Josephus. So Luke identifies in his book 32 countries, 54 cities, and nine islands, all without error. This is the gospel writer's legitimacy. One writer at Yale University says this, archaeological work has unquestionably strengthened confidence in the reliability of the scriptural record. Now, what about the dating of the Gospels and whether they're legends? Another popular claim about the Gospels made by skeptics is that they were written too long after the events they record to retain truth and history. It's not true. There was a very quick turnaround, especially in the context of ancient writings. Uh, Most of the Gospels were written in early 60s AD. That's 25 to 30 to 40 years after the death of Jesus. And well within the period of time when people could check up on the accuracy of the facts they contained. Other non-biblical writings which are trusted and drawn upon to construct history by scholars can't even compare the timeline of the writing of the New Testament in relation to the events that they describe. All the other ancient stories that people trust, Thucydides, Aristotle, were written hundreds of years after the events. So if the Gospels made an inaccurate claim, people could correct the mistake. My grandfather just celebrated his 98th birthday, almost 99. The last time we chatted, we talked about the war, World War II and his part in the Air Force. How many men and women would remain alive today to tell us actually those stories firsthand? It's actually crazy. For how much longer will that be possible? But but the benefits of having them alive still today is that if I were to claim something had happened historically, that for example, the Nazis never existed Or there was no such thing as an airplane in the 1940s. My grandfather would go, what are you talking about? You're crazy. I'm going to refute those facts. That's the value of the gospel being written so early. The eyewitnesses can be talked about. It's almost like someone knew Jesus' historicity would be challenged in the future. So they set out to establish the concrete historical footing with documents that can be trusted for thousands of years. The dating of the Gospels leaves insufficient time for legendary influence to actually erase the core historical facts. So here's why all this matters. As a pastor, walking people through their deepest questions of faith, I've discovered over the years that someone can possess all the evidence in the world declaring something to be true and still deny it. Often we have unspoken reasons, the thing behind the thing. And my hope is that you would be courageous enough to face facts rather than twist them to let them do their work on you rather than trying to take the easy way out, denying this or that. Because you don't want Christianity to be true. That's what we tend to do. And so at the start of this, we we looked at John chapter 5. And there's a warning that Jesus gives to his critics at the end of that passage. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life, he says. I find these, honestly, to be some of the most haunting words Jesus ever spoke. We're all seeking eternal life. You, me, everyone around us at work and life, not just a quantity of life, like, can I live forever? but a quality of life, abundant life, Jesus calls it in John 10. Literally, life to the full, life till it overflows. And that's good news. We want a more meaningful and fulfilling life. This is what drives whom we marry, what we wear, what we eat every single day. And yet it's ever elusive. We, we, 
we trusted in secularism as a culture to replace traditional religious thought and have found it wanting. In John 5, the scholars being addressed by Jesus are looking to the Bible for meaning and fulfillment. You'd think if there was one place a person could find eternal life, that would be it. The problem is they're gaining knowledge about God, but not of God. What a scandal. You can read and study the Bible and find neither God nor satisfaction and fulfillment because you've never met the one behind the words on the page. We can settle for print instead of person, rules instead of relationship, letter instead of spirit, but we must meet the word behind the word. See, why do we do do this? Why do we search after it? The answer is in the story. Why Why do we trade the real answers for stuff we settle for in the world, beauty and, and sex and relationships and money and reputation. Why do we do that? He tells us in the story. He says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from God? John chapter five, verse 44. See, we reject it with, with the truth of the scriptures that we can trust them and what they teach. We reject that because we care more about what people think of us. That's what he's saying than what God thinks. Pride keeps people's hearts from opening up to Jesus. What will my girlfriend think if I trust the gospels? What will my coworkers say? What will my husband do? What if I start going to church or reading my Bible? And in the end, it comes down for many to fear We're cowards. We care more about what people think than what God thinks. We care more about the finite than the infinite. And I began to see the blessings of praise of God in my life, though in the most ironic way when I came to Christ late in my teens. The very people I was mocked by, challenged by, whose opinions kept me from God, slowly began actually wanting what had changed in me, right? That, that's what was crazy. My ex-girlfriend, pregnant from her new boyfriend and wondering what to do, came to me. The friend who weeks earlier had an abortion and was now crying and asking for prayer, needing someone to love her. The close buddy of mine who thought he'd gotten HIV from a girl he'd slept with was now completely terrified, totally lost and vulnerable. All of them were lined up in front of me at different times, wondering in those moments if there was something bigger. I want to have what you have. Pray for me. Help me. What does God think of me? See, each We're saying at some point in the crisis that they wish they had what I had. How do I get that? How do I do what you do? Looking back, I realized what they were seeking. What Jesus said here, eternal life. A fuller way, truly human life. Not in heaven one day, but now. See, we aren't our own saviors. The first problem of Jesus is that he brings a crisis of faith and challenge to us to either make him the center of our lives or deny him altogether. He gives us these two options and the gospels are what present him to us and they can 100% be trusted. Are you willing to go down the route where they will lead you into the crisis that will create truly human life in you and fulfill everything you're longing for? Father, I pray that we would understand that these stories that present Jesus to us can be trusted, even from an from a academic standpoint, from a historical standpoint. And we would actually allow the portrait of Jesus in those books to confront our life, to challenge us, 
you would burn away the cowardice and produce faith in us to give our lives to the one they present. Jesus, let it change what we do, what we want to do, what we live for, for your glory and the good of people. Let us lean into that scandal rather than run from it. In your great name we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks for being with us today. We hope this message was helpful for you. And again, if you are a part of our church or if you'd like to be, we'd love to connect with you online. You can go to our website, pathwaylife.com, and there you can learn more about us. You can give, uh, you can connect with us or follow us on our YouTube or Facebook page. Thanks so much for joining us, and we hope to see you again next time.